You're listening to the 405 Exchange Podcast. My name is Ken Grandpierre, and today's episode is with, um, well, me, actually. <laughs> um, this episode is meant to act as an inductionary episode of sorts, and I know what you're thinking. Dude, you've made about 100 plus episodes already, and you decide to introduce the podcast now? What gives? Well, it's a funny story. When I started this podcast, I had no plans for it, and in fact, I still don't have any plans for it, but that's besides the point. Um, it was born for me recording chats with musicians I was working with anyways, and it started to become quite a part of my daily life. That said, I started to notice that some friends of mine hadn't even known I had started a podcast, because yes, not all of your friends follow you on social media. But this episode is meant to do two things. It goes into the hows and the whys of how the podcast came to be, and it's to show more insight about myself to you, the listener. This episode was made while I was with my friend Courtney Armitage, and she was kind enough to turn the tables and have me interviewed for once. So yeah, let's jump into it, shall we? This is the 405 Exchange. Courtney, how are you? <laughs> this is kind of I see icy numbers going. Okay. <laughs> so the name of this podcast game is Will Ken Get In To See Phoenix Tonight. We're eagerly awaiting the beep from his cell phone. Let's see what happens in the next. 30 minutes. <laughs> I think it probably will. Fingers crossed. Um, this is kind of a trippy thing. There's definitely going to be an intro, but uh, essentially you're about to interview me, which is kind of, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Well, the idea is, I messaged you about this. The idea is that like we have this podcast series going on. It's been great. But I think a lot of people probably have no idea what started or what the idea came from. I thought, like, rather than write a whole thing about it, it'd be cool just to talk about it. So Absolutely. So, so thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, so let's start there. How did you start the 405? Well, it's uh, I started the 405 Exchange, which is the podcast. The 405 already existed before I did okay. the blog itself. Uh, but the way the podcast started was um, I've been like writing uh, interviews with musicians for years, but kind of just here and there. And it was never anything I thought of actually pursuing or trying out. But last uh, spring, I spent some time with Lisa Hannigan, uh, the Irish musician. And I was meant to write a piece on her, and I ended up doing that, but it was the type of thing where I was spending like about two days with her, and she's such a funny person, that all I could find myself thinking was like, wow, you're so funny, I'm not good enough of a writer to convey your humor. So then the idea came to mind, wow, rather than just like trying to write the humor down, why not like record the talks? And I did that, and that, that, that was kind of like the genesis of the idea, and I, at the time I was also finding myself really intrigued by interviews in general and I just love talking to people like I just love talking to people that I think are smarter than me more interesting than me and that I, the podcast kind of like morphed into this thing of like just being able to talk to people I'd want to talk to so the 405 exchange is um an offshoot of the 405 yeah okay so how did you get the name for the 405 what was the idea behind that well that's an interesting thing uh, it was kind of out of laziness <laughs> to be honest it was the type of thing where like me and the main dude who runs the 405 oliver uh in london uh it was one of those things where i told him like hey i want to start this podcast series do you think you guys will host it and he was like yeah absolutely and 
what's cool about them is that if you have good enough ideas, they'll let you kind of have free reign of anything. But uh, at first, it was just called the 405 Podcast. And then it was the type of thing that we should come up with a specific name. And I have to give it up to Oliver for pretty much like, I think I have about three or five different names I was kicking about. And then he stepped in and he was just like, all right, how about we just name it this? And I was like, I like that. And that's kind of how it came out with the 405 Exchange. It's not really, it kind of feels funny saying it this way. There's no grand divine story beyond that. What I love about it is like the element of how a conversation above anything else is an exchange. You're trading thoughts, ideas, and stories, and perspectives. And I think what's really cool about New York City and working in music and working in entertainment is that you really do find yourself growing based on the perspectives you're provided. So when I get to talk to other people, it's really much an exchange, and I'm definitely getting a different point of the view point of view of the world than I wouldn't have gotten if I wasn't talking to that person. It is so interesting to me because part of the reason why I'm asking is because the first time I listened to the podcast was on the 405 in LA. Yeah. And I thought it had something to do with that. I know the funny story. I know the name of the blog itself got the name from that 405 in LA, but particularly from a Def Cab for Cutie song that's about that. Oh, that's okay. That's, so it's super that's meta. Perfect. That's perfect. What has been the most surprising thing about the podcast so far? You know, it's going to sound really fucking cheeky, and I mean this in the best of ways, but I guess the biggest thing has been, like, the most surprising thing has been, like, how easy it's been. In the sense that, like, so, okay, so I think context is needed for people who are probably not in New York City or a city like New York, but it's like, when you're in a place like New York or LA, almost everyone has a podcast or something of the sort. So for years, I've had friends kind of like say just to decide, like, you should do a podcast. And then to me, I'll like roll my eyes and go, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> but like, because you know, it's the type of thing where it's like, one, it looks difficult. And two, if I was to do it, like, what would even be the thing to keep it going? But the thing that surprised me the most once I started doing it was that I started to find it easy in the sense that like, I realized that there's so many podcasts I listen to and I've been listening to for years. And I found myself realizing that there's podcasts I've been listening to for years that are great now, but were really rough or kind of shitty at the start. And that almost sounds kind of like a weird thing to like pinpoint, but I found myself looking at that as a thing to lean into in the sense that like, okay, I could be kind of shitty at this at the start. And I, it's a medium where it's acceptable that you grow better at it. And I found that exciting. And at the same time, I was finding myself getting a little disenchanted with photography and just kind of finding myself wanting a new creative endeavor. So it was kind of a weird, like, right place, right time type of thing where I find myself thinking, like, wow, this is kind of, maybe this will reignite a creative spark. And inadvertently it did. And it's been really fun. I say, I, it's weird. I almost think I should find a better word than easy, but it's like, you know, we're doing this right now. And it's like, there's a recorder between us as the two of us sitting here talking. And what could be easier than talking to someone? It's natural. It feels very natural to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, do you, I mean, what, I'm going to ask you the yeah. other question, but, um, but what, what is, uh, like, do you find yourself more of a, do you feel you're, that you're more of a witness or a storyteller? Oh, wow. That's. Wow, that's a really great question. More than a witness. I would definitely love to be more of a storyteller eventually, but I think the biggest, like the big thing with the podcast is there's no rules, but I guess in terms of like ethos, it's so much that I never want to be, I want to always be the most least interesting aspect to whatever people are listening to, and I want the guests to be the most interesting thing. So 
I say, I, I like, I have it in mind where I'm the witness in terms of I'm experiencing this talk with the listener, and even though I'm facilitating asking questions, it's very much like I'm kind of rambling a bit, but I have to say this so it there's context to it. So I would say the main idea of the podcast, of like that made that cemented in my brain that I wanted to do this, is that I wanted the podcast to be, I wanted the feel of the podcast to be that say you walked into a cafe or a restaurant and there's two people talking and you're just like oh two people are talking there and then 10 minutes go by and then you realize you've been over you've been eavesdropping on their conversation the whole time i kind of want the podcast to evoke that feel where like you're listening but you've just kind of you feel like you've dipped in and it's kind of like the passage of time has been going and in that context i very much feel like i'm much more of like a witness kind of interviewer cool so would you say that's where you want to take the podcast from here yeah, definitely. I think a mixture of the two, being a witness and a storyteller. And definitely, like, you know, someone that I um, admire a lot is Joe Rogan. Uh, he's a presenter, and he has his own podcast. And what I love about him is that he has one of the most successful podcasts in the world, but super simple, and it's super eclectic in regards to the types of people I have on. He's just as likely to have an MMA fighter on as he is, like, a philosopher, as he is a... Uh, physicist or as a movie director or a singer and for the most part like the podcast now it's like 95% musicians which I love because I love music and it's always like a broad spectrum of musicians like there's never any um uh we I never say no to someone depending on genre it's definitely like a wide range but uh, there's loads of people I'd love to have on the podcast that have nothing to do with music. And that's the eventual aim, to like grow it into a place where if you have an interesting story to tell, or even if you don't think you do, you can come on and talk. Like, like, and there's a couple episodes coming up that I'm looking forward to. Like one of my friends who's an actor, he's going to be on. One of my friends who's a farmer, she's going to be on. And that one I'm actually really keen on because I have a friend named Susanna who is a farmer. And what blows me away about her is that she's uh, within my age group and she's a farmer. And I don't think she realizes sometimes that like, that's not really the norm. Like in terms of 2018, like people in their 20s doing farming. And I just find myself fascinated by that because I don't know anything about farming. So sit with me for like 30 minutes, an hour and talk about farming. Like I would love to know what that's about. Wow. Yeah. Sorry. I, a farmer. Okay. No, I'm, yeah. <laughs> sorry. I totally go. And uh, now I have a thousand questions for her. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> wow. Oh, well, I look forward to that podcast. Yeah, that's going to be a great one. <laughs> what was your first concert that you actually shot? Wow. That's a really good question. Wow. The first concert I ever shot. It was, I actually do remember this. It's, it's kind of like a bit of a two-parter. Because uh, the first one I properly shot was actually by accident. I moved here the summer of uh, 2008, and it was to go to college, to the Art Institute, and I was starting in October, and I moved here in July. And I went to see a band from the UK I loved a lot, the Subways. They were playing at Gramercy Theater, and I'd never seen them before, and I loved their music. I was 16 at the time, and I had a, no, sorry, 17. I had a really shitty uh, point-and-shoot camera, and I just brought it with me casually, thinking nothing of it. and. I shot the whole show, like from the barricade, like just like as a fan. But um, I remember I had such a, I felt such a rush when I was doing it, and I remember thinking like, wow, like this is actually kind of dope. Like I was like not that shitty at it. So I mean, I say that where I took like maybe 700 pictures, and I was like two decent ones. 
moderately decent ones. But that was enough to carry me over. So I remember from there I started thinking like, wow, if I could, all I wanted to do is be at shows. All I wanted to do is be around musicians. And the idea came about that if I could figure out how to become the photographers I saw in the pit in front of me, that I'd be at shows all the time. So the reason it's a two-parter is that's the first time I kind of took photos of bands. And the first time I shot a show, it was like this music showcase they were doing at Don Hills. That it was like this bar that used to exist by uh, off of Varick. Doesn't exist anymore, but like a lot of like local bands would play. And so once in a while, like big bands would play because it had like kind of like that CBGB's New York Underground type of history to it. And I shot like four really crap local bands playing it. And it was the first time I actually went, like I left home with a camera with the idea I'm gonna photograph bands. And I did a really shitty job because it was a bar and I did horribly, but I still felt the same rush. That was the thing that tied me over. Like it was awful. Like the lighting was terrible. There was smoke, even though it was a bar that had smoke machines. Um, it's such a spinal tap moment. Yeah, yeah. And it was just really shitty, but I remember I still felt the rush and just like, the big thing is just like the environment of a venue is something I love more than anything else because it's so different than like the regular world in a lot of ways like I feel like you go into a venue and the world just kind of gets shut out but like issues and just like differences and the way that you know little minute stress problems kind of like infringe in your head I feel like you go to a venue and you're surrounded by people who are trying their best not to think about all these things and I guess I found myself addicted to that. And then photography in lieu of that. Fascinating. So um, so basically the first the first time you shot is when you got the photography bug. But yeah. it was the second time that you sort of fell in love with the atmosphere to, to be. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, for me, it was quite the opposite. Um, but uh, um, so what's What's, what's the what's your favorite photo like when did you like know like this is this is it I'm going to continue to do this was there a specific photo that you can think of where you're like oh man I'm in like that's, all in all I <laughs> yeah. that's a really good question god I need a second Ooh. it's like trying to pick your favorite child it really is like I'm trying you know what's funny is like I'm thinking back to like 2000 like eight and nine when I was like really really shit and thinking if there was something that really stuck out to me you know what I remember that autumn I shot uh, The Bravery which are a band that don't exist anymore but they were from California and I really dug them at the time I, I, shot, I shot them too did you really? yeah they played Terminal 5 and I remember I got a shot with you know what it was I remember this vividly now I got a shot of the singer and the guitarist in the same frame mm. and up until that point I had never had done that before and I remember just in my head thinking like, that's a moment. And I, looking back now, the shot definitely wasn't particularly that good, but it was one of those things where just like, it was the first time I took a photo and I felt like the energy was conveyed in the shot. That was probably like, like that October, November, 2008. Is, it, so is that what you go for now? Like your aesthetic, like what, how do you, how would you describe your aesthetic like for photography? That's a really good question. It's something I actually don't get to talk about often. My, I, you know, and I've struggled with that for the longest time. Because I guess naturally for a lot of people when you start doing something creative, you just see so many people with their own takes and their own styles and you find yourself looking at your own work and thinking, God, why don't I have my own take? He's like, stuff? I'm lost. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why can't I do that? And I think the biggest thing for me um, now is that I really want to show someone a moment in time in regards to the eye. Like, I want it when you're looking at a photo of mine 
you're seeing what my eye saw in the most purest, most undisrupted fashion possible. And what I mean by that is like, I love editing and I love the way that people can um, experiment, but I love it when I look at a photo and it feels like I'm like within the environment. So a lot of times when I take photos, I'm, I kind of imagining if someone else was next to me and they were like seeing what I'm seeing. So that's a big like importance for me. So you're almost like feeling like you're the advocate for the concert goer. Yeah, exactly. Like kind of like capturing like what it was like to be in the room, especially like like at a like any type of venue, because it's like the lights are coming down at you. So it's like there's lights everywhere, and it's like it's kind of like hugging the musician, and and even in portraiture, like because um, I've gotten to that so much more the last like three four years. Like I love it when I take a portrait and I'm like I put it up online. And it looks almost like I took with my phone. I know there's photographers who look at that like almost sacrilege, but I love the fact that it's like that real world element to it. I, no, I, I totally understand. I try and get it as close as possible. My friends and I call it in the can. Yeah. <laughs> like when, when you can get something that's like in the can and then you open it up into Lightroom and there's really not a lot that you want to fix. It's the best that feeling That is ever. just like the golden ticket. Like yeah. I'm going to the Wonka factory. <laughs> Fuck all you guys. <laughs> and it's a great feeling when you feel like you're doing that. Mm -hmm. I love that. It really is. Um, what's your favorite band to shoot live? Oh, that's a really good question. There's a handful, actually. Like, I don't know if I can narrow it down to one. All right, pick um, top three. Top three? Well, Phoenix are number number one, who I'm shooting tonight. We're waiting uh, to find out. Yeah, the I, phone hasn't clicked yet. <laughs> I broke with steel. Uh, one of the best venues in New York City. I love the, I love it so much. And they're like one of the best live bands you can see. Uh, Rudimental, which are a drum and bass band from the UK that I've been working with ever since 2013. What I love so much about their live show is that um, essentially there's four main members and they all like are multi-instrumentalists and they uh, like formulate this group, but they have a lot of um, live session singers and live um, other tour members that tour with them. So there's four main guys, but the actual live show is about nine to 12 people usually. So when you're watching them on stage, it's like a big kind of like parliament, modern day parliament funkadelic carnival vibe. And like, they've been really great to me over the years where they've really, they, their ethos with the way they tour and they work is that everyone who works with them is part of their family. So when you're working with them and when you're taking photos of them, you feel like you're an extension of the show that's in front of you. So it's really emotional. And I would say third is 1975, who I've worked with a lot during their first album. And you know, there, a lot of people have different opinions of them. What, what I love so much is like in the live setting, there's the, the spirit that they have that just can't be matched. And I just really love being able to capture that. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. So like, um is there a top three that you haven't shot yet or worked with that you want to work with? Oh, definitely. That's a good question, too. Shit. Ooh. Top three I haven't shot yet that I would love to. You know what? I've never shot Roger Waters, and I'd really love to. That's a big one for me, because as a kid, I used to love uh, Pink Floyd loads and his solo stuff, just in terms of what he's done. Cause I, and we've definitely talked about this before, you and I, but like, it's just amazing what people can do with production. So like the productions he has had on the last couple of tours, I'm just like, wow, what the hell is this? It's, it's, that takes it to like another level. It really does. Yeah. Mm. I'm trying to think who else there would be. There's definitely loads. Kate Bush is another one, but I don't know if that's ever going to happen, so I don't even know. She doesn't even perform much and she doesn't even let people photograph her. I'm trying to think of people more realistic. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know what? I shot gorillas a handful of times last year, but I didn't shoot them in the pit because I have a new photo policy where you shoot them from afar. For people listening, there's um who might not know. Sometimes when we photograph bears, we have to shoot from the soundboard. I'm just pretty much shooting them from a distance. Uh, a lot of people would ask why does that happen sometimes, and one of the big things is that for acts that have uh, types of production or sometimes they're weird about the, uh, I guess, how intimate they want the setting to be within their shows, uh, some acts just make it so that we have to photograph them from afar. So an act like gorillas, they have this like 60 foot tall screen behind them and they want you to kind of get not just the musicians on stage, but the video behind them. Which is understandable and I get, but like being in the pit for them would be amazing because they have like, I think, it's like 12 or 15 musicians on stage and there's so much dynamic stuff going on and like, it would just be so cool getting to capture that. I'm really stuck on a third one. It's funny. You know what? I've shot Miles Kane before. He's like in the last Shadow Puppets of Alex Turner from the Arctic Monkeys. And he has solo stuff, and I've never shot a solo show of him, and he's an amazing live musician, so hopefully, because he's releasing a record soon, hopefully he tours in the US, and actually would really love to do that. I would jump at this shot, the chance to shoot a live show of his, because it's a lot of fun. Would you, you mentioned a lot of uh, UK bands that you, how did you fall into following them? That's a really, I love that question so much. There's Duffy, it has a bit of a long answer, but we've all, this whole thing's been a long answer so far, so I hope you don't mind. No? Nope. <laughs> well, I've got a self drink, I'm fascinated. <laughs> no, it's actually really special for me because, um, so I was born in uh, Rockland County in New York, and uh, because of my dad's job, he worked at a commercial real estate slash architecture firm and be, when I was a kid, and it would made us had to move around quite a bit just for like six to eight months burst at time, but we spent a lot of time in the UK, particularly in London. And we did that up until I was about 11 going on 12. And then we came here and I did middle school and high school here. And through between that time, I found myself feeling really, I struggled a lot with adjusting to like American life full time. And when you're a kid at that time, you don't understand what you're feeling or you're thinking. So one of those things where I knew I was feeling weird, but I didn't have the context for it. And when I was 15 is when I really started getting into music. And it was like the time that like British indie had like this big second coming with like Block Party, Kaiser Chiefs, um, so many acts I could think of, uh, Franz Ferdinand, uh, God, who else? I mean, I'm, there's so many, like Kasabian who are big favorites of mine, Arctic Monkeys, obviously. Uh, there's like 2005. So many acts that I love. I mean, the Fratellis, who you love, we talked about them both. Uh, Foles, Blood Red Shoes, so many of these acts. And I think a big thing I found myself gravitating towards is that there was a Britishness that wasn't being, it wasn't beating people over the head, but it was clear that it was there. And I remember being like 15, 16, 17, 18, and really feeling like I could like relate to this music, even though there was an ocean between us. Cause I didn't get to go back to the UK until I was like 19. So, it, that's kind of one of the biggest reasons because it's almost like here's like the slice from a place I consider home and I just always find myself relating to the things they're talking about even though there's like that distance. No, it makes sense. It's what you connect to. I, it's, it's, it's interesting because I have uh, a lot of UK bands that obviously I love as well. and It, it does. It has like a certain sophisticated without being 
dick. Yeah. You know, it's like you're just like it's not gonna, they're not gonna beat you over the head with their intelligence, but they're just like smarter. There's just something smarter going on there. I, yeah. You just I don't know. I love it. Yeah. Be, uh, yeah. Yeah, and not to like go super long, but I think a big thing as well is that like. You know, when you think about that time period, like the early 2000s, like what, like 2004, 2005, that was when it was like, you know, like a new metal and all that stuff was still popular, but kind of phasing out. Mm -hmm. And like bands like Korn and Deftones, who were really good bands, but like a lot of it was such negative energy. And I think what was really cool about this time period of like British indie is that you had these bands who were like being emotional but showing that they were like different like shades of colors and different facets of being emotional. You mean they were being very British? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> you know what's funny? One of my good friends, I know without a shadow of a doubt, is probably listening to this now. Her name is Kat. And one of the things, Kat, like, studied in the UK, and she loves UK bands and UK culture so much, but there's one thing she can't stand above else is, like, how stifling emotions could be when it comes to British people. So I know right now she probably just had a good laugh at hearing that, so <laughs> hi, Kat. <laughs> but no, I hear you. I mean, like, it was, like there's just, like, and again, maybe it's an emotional intelligence or repression, you know? I mean, you decide. It's a combination yeah, of both, It's a combination of both. But the way that, I mean, I think for me is often reflected in the lyrics and the simplicity of the melodies that like where you're just like ah oh, there it is you know it's, it's like those old standards you know the lyrics are just like heartbreaking but they're set to these melodies that are you know you, you know, they're light they're fluffy you know but yet you're you know being emotionally crushed on the inside it's to a certain sense of it. I don't know it, it's it's the juxtaposition of melody and lyrics that uh, always intrigue me but yeah, yeah I totally feel that um, oh, completely. Yeah, it, it, I, I, there's, there's, I don't know, I gravitate to it often where it's just, I don't know, like, you're just, what do I want to listen to? I don't know, oh yeah, this feels good. This feels just right, you know? Um, and the storytelling, too, that's such a big part of it as well. Such, yeah, I don't want to sing lyrics that I'm going to feel stupid yeah. singing back, and yet, like, when, you know, again, a lot of the time there's like a, it, it, there's a poetry, there's a story, there's a, a you know, there's a, I never feel like I'm lost in, in any of their songs. Yeah. yeah so. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, who has been your favorite artist to work with? Ah, that's a really good question. Rudimental is the obvious choice, but I talked about them a lot already. You know what? Actually, I do know. It's actually kind of meta because they were talking about British people. I would say the band Editors, who um, I toured with them a little bit in 2015. And it was one of those things where I like grew up as a teenager loving them, like I was like super into them. And being the chance to work with them for the amount of days I did in the UK, it was like six days. I remember just for like six days, five shows, I remember just like, <laughs> I remember flying to the UK uh, in my head thinking like, alright, don't fanboy, don't fanboy. And I was, it was almost to the point where like when I like met them properly and started like working with them, I remember it was just kind of like, I almost definitely came across as like a bit of a mute. In the sense I was just like, you know, trying to be too professional. And I think that's kind of natural. We talked about this a little bit before hitting the recorder, but it's like in music and entertainment, the lines between being professional and personable get so blurred that you almost find yourself confused what line you're in. And the happy medium is like finding the middle in the two, but it's really difficult. And I remember like what I really love about that experience is that it was 
it's funny. I'm actually kind of I'm smirking thinking about it. What I love about that experience is that after a while, very quickly, the respect factor kicked in, where you could tell it was very much like, all right, Ken, we know you can take photos, or you can take photos good. Uh, we respect the fact that you could do this, and you know, it was like an unspoken type of thing. And it was the type of thing where, like, I think when you're in uh, positions like that, when it's that unspoken respect and trust, it makes you as a creator feel so comfortable to just thrive. And yeah, I think that I was 25 at the time, and I just remember just thinking to myself, like, wow, like, I have this trust bestowed on me. And it was also the thing of being in the UK as well, like, uh, the first night of this tour was in Belfast, which is a, uh, almost like a second home to me. It's very important. And we're in Dublin at the Olympia, which is a beautiful, beautiful venue. And Bristol and Manchester and then London. And all those places are like very, very important to me. So I remember just thinking, like, it's like living a dream. I remember at the time feeling so grateful for where I was. And it also had to do with them as people. Like, they were really great people to be around. Was that like your favorite tour experience? I think so, definitely. It, it borders between that and Tudor Cinema Club, like, years ago. Like, it was, like, I want say 2011. I was with them only for about three shows. It was, like, Boston, here in New York, and D.C. But it was that thing where, like, they're a little bit older than me, most of the members, but just by a little bit, like, about two to three years. And I remember it was that thing where, like, they just came to America for the first time. We had a bunch of mutual friends in Ireland, and... It was that thing where like they're like, whoa, we're in New York slash America. Let's like fucking have the time of our lives, and it just felt very infectious. Like I remember that. Like it was that. Yeah, that was really a, yeah. Those are some amazing times. Um, who did have you ever fan, have you ever actually fanboyed out on anyone? Like completely unwittingly, you just had no control. I definitely have. I'm trying to think who it was. And would you like to apologize to them now in a 12-part apology? <laughs> no, definitely no, fuck it. No, no, no. no, I'm not apologizing to you, a fanboy army. No. no, actually it did. Um, some people are going to kind of gasp when they hear this, but I used to live in Williamsburg a few years back, and at the same time, Alex Turner of the Arctic Monkeys did as well. And this is like when they were, I think it was either while they were recording Humbug or they just finished it. And what's funny about that time, it's like 2008 and nine. He was, like, be, trying to be low-key, like, trying to, like... And I think a lot of British celebrities do this, though, like, be in New York, thinking, like, oh, I'll be low-key and people aren't gonna bother me. But it's like, you're a famous indie rock musician, you're in the one city in America where people are gonna, like, bother you. And I remember I saw him, like, either at a laundromat or some store, like... I remember being kind of perplexed, thinking, like, you're a millionaire and you're at a laundromat. I don't know why, that doesn't make any sense. But he was, like, wearing a denim jacket, he had, like, shraggy hair, he had sunglasses. I remember just going up to him going like I fucking love your albums. Like I didn't even like I didn't give a shit. I was like, dude, I, like your work's fucking amazing. And I just like let him have it. And you could tell like on his face. No, but like it was one of those things where you could tell on his face. He was like, oh god, someone recognized me. It's like we have the internet. Yes, I recognized you, sir. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we we live in the day of the yeah. interweb. Yeah, you're not like a fucking. You're not like some mysterious guy. Like I could see you. Like, yeah. I've definitely fanboyed on other people, too. I'm trying to think of a big one. I guess that's the biggest. I fan... You know what? I um, I guess another one would be The weekend, And I didn't even get a chance to have a conversation with him. He was just, like, backstage at a festival. And I love his music. Like, I, I've adored his music for years. And one of those times where I really wanted to say something to him. And, I mean, he tours with, like, a big, like, crew of people who are, like... Some of them... This is, like, not even, like, a... 
uh, oversharing. It's like all over the internet. But he t- like some people in his career are like ex cons and stuff. So they're like really like big tough dudes, and they like surround him. They pretty much like you know protect him. That's the type of thing where I saw him. It's like man, I'd love to tell that dude I love his music. Don't know if it's a safe option though, so I'm probably not going to do that. <laughs> so uh, just to finish it up, what's like your best advice for somebody who wants to get into concert shooting? That's a good question. Just to do it, honestly. And it sounds like really like I think people find that kind of like obvious like the whole nike just do it type of thing but one of the things i think is very important is just like you need to allow yourself to be shit at something because like for me with like concert photography particularly right it was like i started doing around 2008 and i would say between 2008 to 2012 was just like trying it different things and like being really bad at it and just like take it not i don't want to say not taking it seriously but not considering it as a career or like a path or anything it was the type of thing where I very much was like oh I know I don't know what I'm doing but this is the time for me not to and allowing myself that time because I think a lot of people think is like if I'm not good at something in a year or two years then what's the point but I remember just looking at people I really admired like Danny North, Andrew Witten, uh, Puni Ghana, so many people I fucking love the shit out of, Rachel Wright and I would look at their work and think like like if they're that good I knew there was a period where they were not good for a long time so if I ever want to even be a fraction of how good that is I need to just revel in being shit and I and I did I like yeah I think if, if anyone wants to get into anything creative concert photography of yeah, anything creative just be like shit at it like just let yourself be crappy at it and just fight, like allow yourself to learn from your mistakes I guess that's the biggest thing like I think you know what, it's kind of almost a two-parter, but I think what's weird about social media now that I didn't have to deal with when I was starting out is that you get to know people on social media, which is amazing, but there's almost like this confirmation bias that kind of goes on where like, I think people put on put photos online sometimes and they know a certain amount of people are gonna like them, which is beautiful, but it's the type of thing where like, it's almost like, is, someone's actually, or is someone actually responding to where they like your work or is it because they like you as a person? And it's a weird thing to ask yourself, but I think it's like having that self-awareness that that exists and knowing that you should be paying more attention to people you don't know and seeing what the, uh, I guess, the measurement is, like the ratio between people you know and people you don't know responding to your work. And it, that sounds kind of cold, but I think it's just important that like, you want, and I think this would extend to even if you're a painter or a musician, you want your work to extend past your friend group. So just paying attention to that, I think, is really important. Awesome. Yeah. Wise words from a man who knows how to take good conscious photos. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate that. And I can, and I can.